Hey guys, Tim Wright's with you. Another edition of Tim's Takeaway. Today, we're going to take a look at face and neck trauma. You know, if you were in my program, you probably recognize that I am one to discuss this with respiratory emergencies as well as part of airway management. But as usual, trying to give you some resources that if you need to take a look at specific chapters, maybe a little bit more or review specific chapters, that's the whole intent of what a Tim's Takeaway is about. I could dive into why the heck I do the, what I do in a classroom, but that's not for this podcast. Anyway. You know, the face and the neck are really vulnerable when it comes to traumatic injuries. And you think about it, they are truly unprotected positions of the body. So a lot of times soft tissue injuries and fractures are going to be pretty common. And we're also going to note that there is some penetrating trauma that can occur and that's going to cause some severe bleeding. And keep in mind... For the future, when we talk about treatment, any open wound to the neck can cause an air embolism and it goes into the circulatory system. So that's one of the reasons why we need to make sure that we are paying attention and doing our proper patient assessments of everybody that we come in contact with. So let's go back to the head and just review some structures. You know, the skull, also known as the cranium, is going to contain that very important organ that it protects. That's right, it is the brain. So the most posterior portion of that skull is going to be called the occiput. And on each side of the skull, or the cranium, is going to be the temples. And these are going to be on the lateral portions or on the side of your head. And if you really check them out, you notice that they are going to be a little softer. They almost feel like they're pretty thin. Well, we also have the forehead. And for those of you that know me and have seen me, I have a very large forehead. As many friends tell me, I have a five head. Yes, I'm sure you've heard that before. Well, the forehead is going to be also known as that frontal region. And when we go just anterior to the ear in the area of where the temple's at, you can actually feel the superficial temporal artery. So you actually put your two fingers just anterior to the ear and you're able to feel that pulse. It's pretty cool, right? I know you're doing it now. The face has at least six major bones. You know, the orbit, obviously, is going to protect the eye. The nose, even though there is a nasal bone, it's only partially protected by bone. The rest of it's going to be cartilage. The ear is going to be primarily made up of cartilage as well. And then, of course, we're going to be dealing with the different portions of the, of the face, and we're going to be dealing with the maxilla, and the mandible, and the mandible, remember, is going to form that lower jaw, and it's going to form that chin as well. Now, the neck has a lot of different 
structures that we must deal with. It does or is supported by the cervical spine. And if we recall, the cervical spine is going to contain seven cervical vertebrae. And when we're in class, we talk about those things to remember and say it's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner as you're trying to remember what's happening in the spine. And it's 7 a.m. is where breakfast usually is, and hence the reason why the cervical spine is going to be seven vertebrae. The upper part of the esophagus and the trachea are going to be midline of that neck. And on either side is going to be carotid arteries. And we also have the jugular veins. And of course, everywhere else in that neck is going to also have several nerves. The larynx is the voice box, or what people are going to refer to as that Adam's apple. And it's going to be really the center of that neck, at least that anterior portion of the neck. The cricothyroid membrane is going to be just distal to where the Adam's apple is. And you may be called upon to help out your partner if you're running with a ALS crew, usually the paramedics, that they may need to do a needle cricothyrotomy or they may need to do a surgical airway. And that's a location in which they're going to go. And they're probably scared and are going to need a little bit of help. And by the way, if they're listening and say, oh, I'm not going to be scared, I've done them and have been scared. So, yes. Anyway, the trachea, as we said, is going to be below that larynx. And it connects the oropharynx to the main passages of the lungs. It goes into the bronchi. And we also are taking a look at all the muscles that are there. The sternocleoid mastoid muscles. Probably said that wrong, but you know, that's what my notes are telling me. Allow movement of the head, so you're actually allowing movement of the head to occur. And then, of course, as I am looking at my notes, I'm realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with the eye. And that eye is located inside of a nice little socket that is called the orbit. And I think we just mentioned that a little bit ago. And the orbit has adjacent bones of the face and the skull. And it usually, at least in adults, it protects about 80% of the eyeball. So it really does protect a good portion of it. The eyeball or the globe keeps its shape because of pressure from the fluid that is within the two chambers so that clear jelly-like fluid that is near the back of the eye is called the vitreous humor and in the front part of that lens is going to be called the aqueous humor the conjunctivi is going to be the membrane that covers the eye. And most likely you have heard somewhere along the line somebody said, oh, you had conjunctivitis. Well, that would be an inflammation of the conjunctivi. The lacrimal, the lacrimal glands 
are going to be the tear glands. And that's usually what most people are familiar with them as. And they are giving fluid to keep the eyes nice and moist. So if you blink, fluid comes over and it actually cleans the eye each time. Now tears drain on the inner side of the eye through the two lacrimal ducts that are into the nasal cavity. So every time you hit your nose, most likely that's why you start to develop watery eyes. The sclera is going to be the white fibrous tissue that allows the shape of your eye. It's like a globe type thing. And this is a pretty, helps protect a lot of the delicate inner structures. Now on the front of the eye, the sclera is replaced by a clear transparent membrane that is called the cornea. And this is what allows light to enter the eye. The iris is going to be behind the cornea. And then the pupil is what is the opening in the center of that iris. And that's what we take a look at a lot of times in relationship to patient assessment. And sometimes it freaks people out when you look at the eye and you realize that, oh my gosh, these pupils are different sizes. Well, people can have what is referred to as anisocoria, which is a condition in which the pupils are unequal. They're just different sizes. The lens focuses images on the retina at the back of the globe. Now the retina contains nerve endings which are going to respond to light. It transmits impulses through the optic nerve to the brain. Now the retina is nourished by blood vessels and this is usually between and back and, and at the back of the globe. And one condition that actually can occur is called retinal detachment. And the retina actually detaches from the underlying portions uh, of the sclera and it can cause blindness. So knowing what that can do, I bet you that's going to give us some indications of what might be going on with our patients when we start doing assessment. Now, we have to take a look at injuries. Obviously, we're talking about trauma. So we got to talk about some injuries that are going to occur to the face and the neck. You know, these, these issues, um, whether blunt or penetrating trauma to the neck and to the face, can cause or have the potential to cause partial or really complete obstruction of the upper airway. Remember, the upper airway is going to be anything from above the voice box or above that larynx. So there are other factors or contributing factors that are here to um, look at our obstruction. Blood clots may get in the upper airway, particularly if there's a lot of facial bleeding. There may be some direct injuries to the mouth or the nose could also be to the voice box or the trachea itself. And these are also going to be significant sources of bleeding for us and can cause some respiratory distress and truly cause some airway obstruction. Injuries may also cause teeth or even their dentures, even individuals' dentures or crowns, partials, to become dislodged. And really, there may only be one place for them to go, and that would be into the throat. So swelling 
may occur and usually occurs because that's just one of the normal reactions of the body. And this may be the result of some type of indirect injury as well. And um, the soft tissues can then also contribute to that airway obstruction just because they swell. It may also, the airway may be affected when the patient's um, head is turned to the side. So it can actually start to occlude things off as well. And of course, if there are injuries to the brain or the cervical spine, they may actually interfere just with normal respiration as we know it. And as we kind of alluded to earlier, the face and the neck are really vascular. Uh, most of the time, you can ask most gentlemen, and when they shave or they nick their face, it just it continuously bleeds. And the face and the neck are just notorious for that. And there's a lot of rich blood supply, so therefore any type of blunt injury can cause hematoma. Now, mandible injuries are going to be pretty common just because the mandible um, is sticking out there. Remember, that is going to be your jawbone. And next to the nose, this is the most frequently fractured bone that occurs in the face. This is usually, by the way, the result of anybody who may get involved in any type of assault or maybe from motor vehicle crashes, those types of issues may also be related to sports injuries as well. Now the maxillary fractures are usually found after some type of high energy impact. And so that's why we have to make sure that we're looking at the maxilla and we're going to feel for that crepitus and we're gonna also check for any type of swelling and hematoma that may be there. If they have any type of evolved tooth, you know, those are pretty common. And those fragments of teeth can really become loose and they're going to go all over the place. And they may also cause some form of airway obstruction and we really need to clear those things out quickly. So as usual, when we get into some things with patient assessment, you know, it's that whole scene size up, find out about the safety of issues, uh, what has happened. Are we talking about an assault? Are we talking about a motor vehicle collision? Are we talking about a fall down the steps? What has actually happened? And can I verify that the scene is truly safe? And with that, we need to make sure that we're utilizing personal protective equipment with those standard precautions and try to identify any type of mechanism of injury that may have occurred, what, what has actually happened. You know, if there's a life threat this is when you get into a lot of control that external hemorrhage and it needs to be addressed quickly it needs to be addressed before you deal with airway and breathing you must start with applying direct pressure get that general impression what is that patient telling you when you take a look at them you know is this giving you that that look that there's an impression that the patient's in deep trouble how is their avpu scale you know are they awake are they alert or are they only responding to you when you inflict some type of pain? Make sure their airway and breathing, make sure that their airway is open, make sure that it's clear. Again, if the mouth is open, if they're unresponsive and you open up their mouth and you verify that there is nothing in the mouth, then you have to question, do I need to put something in the mouth to control the tongue and aid in their breathing if need be? Circulation, you know, make sure that they have a great pulse, make sure that it's there. Again, this may give you some indications as to whether or not, if it's slow, could be indications of some deeper head injuries. 
and if it's fast it may also tell you that there's probably some form of shock ongoing or could this be something that's related to hypoxia you got to decide with uh, your transport pretty much at this point you know are you gonna quickly transport these folks with the airway and breathing problem or are you going to at least get them stabilized you know those are some of the big issues that we run into I think in EMS because it's very easy for people to uh, armchair quarterback what may have happened but you know you got to help control that airway you have to make sure that you have equipment ready when you arrive at the scene and this is being prepared get a good history find out about what they may be complaining of you know uh, so far I'm pretty much assuming that they were unresponsive but don't forget you know if they're awake get a good history find out with uh, uh, their sample history Find out if they're taking any of those blood thinner medications because that's going to make life worse. So, you know, be careful about what you see there. In that secondary assessment, you're going to have to decide, you know, if the patient's awake, um, they may be awake and are able to answer questions. You may be able to just simply get away with a um, focused exam. But if you're talking about they have an altered mental status, the mechanism of injury is telling you that something could be more serious, now you need to do a head-to-toe exam and get a little bit uh, more detailed about what's happening. Make sure, again, that you control any bleeding that you may not have done so at first. Stabilize any impaled objects. We don't need those things to be moving all around. And do that physical exam. Look listen and feel so look at the part of the body and you need to be able to see the skin and then you also want to listen to any portion of the body that you may or really that produces sounds and you want to be able to feel you want to be able to touch those portions of the body to identify whether or not there's any unstable masses whether or not there's any unstable bones those types of things don't forget about your vital signs don't forget to take a look at your blood pressure your pulse oximeter reading and we also want to make sure that we have a great and accurate pulse reassess these patients just as we normally would if you're talking about an individual who has a significant injury and is more life-threatening then we're going to talk about reassessing them about every five minutes as opposed to somebody who is essentially stable and that's going to be about every 15. So what are you going to do? Well, we, we already talked about the fact that if they're having any type of injury to the face and neck, that we want to make sure that we are applying direct pressure to any type of bleeding that you may have, assure that we are dealing with airway breathing circulation. And, you know, you could go back and say, well, this is March. Yeah, this not the month, but this is March. So that mnemonic March dealing with um, the massive hemorrhage, dealing with the airway control, and dealing with respiratory compromise. And now we deal with circulation and hypothermia. Those are some of the things that we take a look at. And those are coming from one, one group. And another group is talking about XABCD. And when we start talking about XABCD, Folks like PHTLS and American College of Surgeons are starting to get in and adopt a little bit of that stuff as well. And the X meaning extanguination, then go with airway, breathing, circulation. 
the disability and the exposure to find out what is happening. If there is an injury that exposes any part of the brain, the eye, or any other structures, you need to make sure that you cover those exposed parts up with a moist, sterile dressing. If there uh, is some swelling in the area that has not broken any skin, go ahead and apply some ice. Remember, anytime that we put ice on the skin, we want to make sure that we provide a barrier between the ice as well as... If you're dealing with any type of soft tissue injuries that are going to be around the mouth, you always need to check for any type of bleeding that may actually be occurring inside the mouth because broken teeth, some lacerations maybe to the tongue can cause some profuse bleeding there and can also obstruct the airway. And just remember that now we have piercings in different locations in the tongue um, or the nose may also be places in which we have to take a look at because bleeding may need to be taken under control. A lot of times though, patients are gonna end up swallowing that blood. And as a result of that, um, you may not be able to see that right away. And this is why you really need to take a look inside their mouth. Even if they're awake, you know, just have them open up, stick out their tongue. You are a medical professional. These are not goofy things that we think that we're doing, but we're assessing and taking care of our patients. Not only that, if they are swallowing a lot of that blood, keep in mind that it's probably going to make them very, very prone to being more nauseated as well as developing some emesis. So if you find some evolved skin, make sure that you wrap them in some sterile dressing, get them in a plastic bag, and you want to make sure that you keep them cool. And if the skin is attached and it's, uh, you know, pretty much still that evolved piece, put the flap back in a position that is as close to normal as possible. And, uh, you know, if you need to do some direct pressure to that, uh, by all means, you need to make sure that you do so. So I have some friends that are out there that just, oh, everybody just loves eye injuries. But these are the folks that really, um, when I talk to them all the time, they're like, Tim, I hate eye injuries. I mean, my gosh, I can't, I can't even look at my own eye if there's something wrong. Well, you know, eye injuries are common, and particularly they occur in sports, and they can cause some problems long-term as well, and it can include blindness. And any time, roll of thumb, that we have any injury to the eye, we need to make sure that because both eyes move together, we need to make sure that we're going to bandage them up as well together. Treatment's always going to be checking out that exam. Let's see exactly what's happening. And look for any type of abnormalities. I mean, a damaged cornea loses a lot of its smooth, wet appearance. So that kind of gives you an idea of what's happening. There may be a foreign body that is present and it may leave some abrasions um, on the conjunctiva. And you know, just uh, it kind of takes me back to remembering that I had an individual uh, partner I was working with. We were doing some work at the station um, during some downtime and uh, he had on safety glasses, but something got in through the sa underneath the safety glass and he had some metal shavings that, that had got stuck in his eye and we had to go to the uh, the eye doctor and they had to go ahead and remove those things and he did he had some abrasions and required some medications to be used to help reduce some type of infection that may occur so they do occur even if you're utilizing some proper safety equipment that's why it's always important to just because you wear safety devices doesn't mean that you should assume that you're always going to be 100 percent safe all right, well, that's my public service announcement or my PSA for that. 
um, take a look at some other things. I mean, really, you're talking about if there's an impaled object in the eye. I just said earlier, you need to bandage both eyes. This way, um, you can do so with a soft, bulky dressing, and it helps to prevent further injury because you don't need the pupils and the muscles that are occurring inside the eye constricting and dilating to cause more damage. Now, if you have burns of the eye, you really need to stop the burning. Anytime that you're dealing with burns, you stop the burning process. It's the first thing that occurs. And when we talk about burns, we'll talk more and more about the fact that, you know, dousing water on people is not what we're talking about. We're stopping the burning process, and we'll talk more about that in the burns section. But during a fire, you know, it's pretty common that you're going to be able to have your eyes closed that are they're there to protect the heat. Just think of a campfire or you put a fire outside your house that's in a little burn barrel. You know, the hotter it gets, you can definitely tell that your eyes try to shield themselves. And uh, sometimes these things may not be painful at first, particularly uh, light burns. Uh, you know, here you may be talking about some bright light that may be coming from welding or prolonged exposure in a uh, in a tanning booth um, or it could be something as simple as going out on at least here in Pennsylvania in our local ski slopes in the winter and too much glistening snow um, with a light in his snow-covered areas may cause a problem as well. And a lot of times people are not going to feel that right away, and they'll find out that these things occur where they start to develop pain about three or five hours later. If there's a laceration to the globe itself, don't apply pressure. You're only going to make that, that situation even worse. Um, hyphema is actually bleeding into the chamber of the eye or that anterior chamber of the eye. And it obscures all or part of the iris. You also have to be worried with blunt injuries as well for retinal detachments. And that's when people are going to complain of that sudden blindness. Now, contact lenses, I am a contact lens wearer. But you got to be careful, right? I mean, don't attempt to remove contact lenses except if there's some type of chemical burn. If you're dealing with a hard contact, you're, you're probably going to need a small suction cup that is going to be able to try to pull these out with some saline. If it's a soft contact lens, you may be able to pinch this with uh, um, your fingers to be able to um, pull that out and it lifts off the surface of the eye and that's usually what I wear. And then you need to place these lenses in type of some sterile saline solution and make sure that you're giving this stuff to the hospital. Sometimes there are people that do wear um, prosthetic eyes and um, you need to make sure that you're aware that they're wearing a prosthetic eye. You're probably not going to see a whole lot of response with it. You're like, what the heck is going on? Um, the nose, as we had described earlier, can cause some problems as well because it kind of like sticks out there. And some people, it's out a little further than others. I'm not trying to be prejudiced, but, you know, hey, if it's sticking out a little further, it's more likely to become injured. And it is one of the most common causes of some type of fracture or bleeding that actually occurs at the, at the facial area. But one of the most common causes of nosebleeds or epitaxis is going to be digital trauma. Basically, picking your nose. So don't pick your nose. It's not a good thing. Anterior nosebleeds are usually something that is going to be in the area of the septum of the nose, and they bleed fairly slowly. 
Now, posterior nosebleeds are ones that always people are more worried about, and these are the ones that are truly more severe, and they cause blood to drain into the back of the throat. Always assess your patients to determine if there's any presence of cerebral spinal fluid because it can actually escape down through the nose if there is some type of fracture to the base of the skull. Usually, these folks already have some type of an altered mental status if they're um, uh, having a cerebral spinal fluid coming out. You need to control any bleeding that you may find to the nose, obviously, by direct pressure. If the patient's bleeding heavily, um, it may be the result of some type of significant trauma. But if it's a non-trauma patient, you know, you're going to have to pinch the nose, um, put them in a sitting position, have them lean forward and make sure that they're pinching the nostrils together. Do not have them lean back. That's always been an old wives' tale that... Uh, you know, have them lean back. Absolutely not. It's going to put the blood in the back of their throat and it's going to make the situation even worse. The ear, um, I think that most people are pretty um, cognizant of their ears and therefore we do know that if you have an ear infection or you have a blockage of your ear, you have trouble hearing and it also affects your balance. But there are three sections that we'll end up taking a look at. Look at the external ear, the middle ear, and the inner ear. And usually our biggest issue is if there is any type of avulsion. Well, if the ear has been avulsed off, uh, you know, you need to really wrap that avulsed part into a moist, sterile dressing. Put it in a plastic bag and make sure that you put the patient's name on it. There are other things that we may have, have occur, such as a tympanic membrane rupture. And when you get into things like that, this is when we're talking about pressure changes, maybe from a blast injury that can cause a rupture, or maybe it's kiddos or even us putting foreign bodies into the external, external auditory canal. And any foreign body really needs to be removed by a physician. And if we try to manipulate it, a lot of times we just have a tendency to push it further back. Um, if you see any clear fluid or cerebral spinal fluid that is coming from the ear, it may indicate a skull fracture. Again, one of those things that you may be able to take a look at as a possible test to determine if it is water coming out of that ear. You know, it may be snowing, it may be rain. What can you do? Well, one of those things you can do is actually take a piece of gauze and if that um, drips on that water or that clear fluid drips onto the gauze and if it turns into what appears to be a bullseye, pretty much telling you that would be cerebral spinal fluid. Facial fractures really are things that um, are often occurred because there's some type of direct blow to the to the face and it can cause facial fractures. But facial fractures in and of themselves really are not an acute emergency unless there's a lot of serious bleeding and it can cause some airway obstruction. But if you see that somebody has had their teeth knocked out, I hate to say it that way, but you know, that's what it is. The teeth have come out. They may be loose or there may be bone fragments that you see inside their mouth. And this is possible that they may be able to get these things re-implanted. Re um, so you need to make sure that you get those things out of there, save those. Um, you may be able to put them into some milk if you have that readily available. Otherwise, you're going to treat them essentially the same way as we were dealing with some type of avulsions. Dental injuries, other dental injuries, I mean, you're talking about the fact that um, most people are probably going to be going to have a lot of traumatic issues as it relates to the fact that they have permanent teeth that may be lost. 
Um, and this also means that we also have to be careful of any type of bleeding because this can be something that has been violently displacing a tooth from its socket. Look at injuries to the cheek. You know, you may um, find that there is some type of an impaled object into the patient's cheek. I often hear people say, oh, pencil got stuck like that. Okay, well, it could be. Um, but if you're really looking at this, if you're unable to control the bleeding and it's compromising the airway, then you really need to consider removing the object. Now, any impaled object, unless it is interfering with uh, their airway, is the only time that you're going to remove it. Um, but for the most part, you know, you do need to make sure that we control that and get it stabilized. If you're dealing with some blunt injuries to the neck, you know, crushing injuries can occur. Um, sometimes these things occur just because of, uh, you know, motor vehicle collisions are a big one. Other things may be, um, you know, you're on a motorcycle, a uh, dirt bike, and uh, somebody decides to pull the clothesline over the trail because they're unhappy that you were driving there, and it pretty much, that's what the clothesline is, and it is going to strike your neck and can potentially cause crushing injury and that is going to uh, leave just a little mark. And you always have to worry anytime that you're dealing with anything that's anterior or a throat issue. You also have to be worried about the cervical spine as well. Penetrating injuries, I think we alluded to a little bit earlier um, in the podcast. And we had said that, you know, any type of open wound to these areas can potentially cause an air embolism. And therefore, that's why we need to use an occlusive dressing to not allow air to get in there. Um, those are going to be those uh, Vaseline gauzes or, you know, you're talking about a little piece, pieces of plastic that's going not going to allow the air to go in. Now, penetrating injuries, you know, is just a little further with that is that you also have the carotid and jugular veins, so there could be a lot of bleeding. And really, when you get into there, I mean, it is not an un uncommon thing that if those are lacerated, I mean, until there's really some type of direct pressure that's applied to that, it can extanguinate out and completely lose their blood volume. Um, the vein, if it's punctured, an air embolism can result, and that's why we really need to make sure that we're taking care of these folks um, quickly. If you're dealing with a laryngeal injury, you know, most of these are related to some type of blunt force trauma. And again, just as I had said about, you know, motor vehicle collision or somebody that has been clotheslined, maybe because of a, a you know, motorcycle uh, driving through the woods. Those are the same type of issues. Laryngeal or uh, tracheal injuries are going to be common with this. If there is any type of, again, penetrating or impaled objects to this area, they should uh, not be removed unless they're really causing a problem with you for airway comp or sorry if they're not causing a problem with airway compromise you're essentially going to leave them in place and our probably one of our last areas that we're going to take a look at is going to be dealing with the fact that if the larynx is damaged if there is some type of penetrating injury this can really cause a significant risk of airway compromise because you're now going to have a problem trying to bring in enough air to fix the problem well i think with that we have now concluded another edition of the tim's takeaway 
And this again was dealing with the face and neck trauma. And I hope to see you again real soon on one of those next podcasts. And thanks. Have a good one.